GBC, you are a church uh, that I've heard much about, have prayed for, and been grateful uh, to God for, for, for many reasons, including the, the gracious use of your premises here. Um, we've seen some of our church members married here, uh, baptized here, and, and trained here. And so thank you so much for your kindness uh, to the broader church in Singapore. And for these and for many other reasons, including my real affection for uh, Eugene and Claire, it really is a joy to be with you here today. I first met Eugene Lowe about 11 or 12 years ago when he was still living in the U.S., but was back in Singapore for a short visit. He and Claire uh, have been a profound blessing and gift from God to me and to the church that I pastor. And so when I say that it's, it's a joy for me to be with you today, I am not simply being polite. I really am delighted today that you are seeing this man appointed as your lead teaching pastor to lead you as a church together with the elders. Every man who is a pastor is a pastor and simultaneously himself a fallen sinner. And therefore, it is so important that the man that you appoint knows that he himself is a sinner, that he's humble enough to admit it and to rely upon God's mercy, to be a person whose conscience is bound to the Word of God and a man who loves the church deeply. And I believe in Eugene, you do have such a man. Now, our text today is part of a charge that Paul gives to his young apprentice, Timothy. Paul has left Timothy at, at Ephesus, and he has to help the young church uh, there come to healthy order. Now, given the connection to the church and Paul's role as this apostle who is guiding Timothy as to how he might help the church to conduct themselves as the household of God, it's an appropriate text for us to consider this morning as someone is installed as the role of a lead pastor. And yet, even though this letter that we read this morning is primarily correspondence between two people, it's not simply just private correspondence. This letter we now have as part of our Holy Scripture. What that means is that this charge that is given by Paul to Timothy is a charge that God desires for all of us, including you, GBC, to know about. And why is that? Because the state and health and joy of your pastor and responsibilities of your pastor is in, is in many ways tied to your well-being too. In many ways, his well-being is also your responsibility. Oh, people of God, it is your task today and in the years that go forward to pray for him, to encourage him in his labors, to affirm him when he is doing things well, to be gracious to him and, com and cover him in his weaknesses, to help when he may stumble, for he too is part of this body and your body. And who does not care for their own body, particularly when it is the body of Christ? Now, this sermon and this charge is primarily addressed to Eugene and some of the elders. But I want us all to listen carefully this morning so that we may know together what God is saying to him and to them in order that we together may pray for him and the elders, encourage them, and support Eugene today wholeheartedly. When a local church is healthy and works well like this, with people and pastor loving Jesus and working well together, they become part of a glorious cycle where all together are working to spur one another on toward love and good works. So let's have a look this morning at how Paul begins his epistle to Timothy. Our text is very short this morning, and there are two main things we're going to have a look at and see. Firstly, Paul wants Timothy to guard sound doctrine in the church. And secondly, he wants him to do this for the purpose of sincere 
love. So let's begin. Paul wants Timothy to devote himself to sound doctrine. Paul is writing here to Timothy and he charges him in verse 3. Let's read it together. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, and why should Timothy remain? So that you, Timothy, may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. This is the instruction. Do not teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The first thing that we see here is Paul wants Timothy to guard sound doctrine. He wants him to be vocal about it. He wants him to charge certain people who are prone to not do this to make sure that they do not teach anything different from true sound doctrine. And this, this first part of Paul's encouragement has two aspects to it. Firstly, command people not to teach any different doctrine. And then secondly, uh, neither to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Let's have a look at the first one. The instruction is clear. Timothy, you have authority to tell other people not to speak on behalf of God anything that is contrary to that which is sound, that which is biblical. And Paul's concern for pure doctrine oozes out of him in just about every page of Scripture that he pens. We think about him writing to the Corinthians and at the end of that letter saying, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul wants him to do this. Now, pure doctrine, let's think about this, can get distorted and twisted in many different ways. It can be distorted by those who just very plainly try to twist it. Those that say what is good is bad or what is bad is good. Some people, uh, even in Paul's day, were kind of wondering if, 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 if grace is true, should we just go on and sin that grace may abound? There's a way of twisting the scriptures. Maybe we, pure doctrine can be distorted by being added to. We may not deny the death and the resurrection of Jesus for our sins, but we say, yes, of course, we do believe that, but that's not itself sufficient. We also need to make sure that we devote ourselves to this. We think about Paul's letter to the Galatians, where he's concerned that even though they do believe that Jesus died and rose again, that they have added to the gospel. They have added that they are justified by obedience to the law. And Paul has to write to them and say that when you add to the gospel, you actually distort the whole thing. And as he says in chapter 1, you end up losing God himself. To turn away from the gospel by simply adding to it is to lose God. Or possibly we could just find ourselves claiming that we believe everything, but emphasizing some things a lot more than other things. I don't know how many of you got into baking during the circuit breaker. It seemed like all of Singapore was doing some form of baking or another. But uh, I've been told that when you bake, if you get your proportions of the ingredients wrong, you're going to have a big mess on your hands. You can't take that recipe and say, well, I like sugar, so let me just multiply the amount of sugar in this cake by 10 times, and let me reduce the amount of flour by 10 times, and they should balance themselves out. Well, what you will have left is no longer a cake. It probably won't be edible at all. In a similar way, 
we must ensure that we are teaching the entire counsel of God, that this is being represented rightly, that we are emphasizing the glory of God and His holiness and righteousness as much as we speak of His grace, His kindness, His mercy to us. Or it's possible for us also simply to leave things out in our ministry, not preaching the full counsel of God, as Paul urged these elders at Ephesus uh, to do, to which this very, the place where Timothy was stationed. And we aren't to do this. Paul is saying to Timothy, make sure that you're really making sure that sound doctrine, the death and resurrection of Jesus, is front and center, that it doesn't get swept to the side by other doctrine, even if that's adding to it. In a sense, teaching pure doctrine, friends, is a bit like describing uh, what God is like. All of our doctrine flows from the reality of the nature and the character of God. And to get this wrong is to, is to slander God himself. Secondly, Paul says that Timothy is not to devote himself to myths or to endless genealogies. Now, myths in those days were unreal tales that only the gullible were prone to believe and follow. I'm not too sure how many of us here are maybe prone to, uh, to f- devote themselves to myths. We might be open to different types of religious uh, phrases not really found in God's word, things that people say like, you know, just let go and let God, thinking that that's some scripture, which really isn't. Or maybe some people have some kind of views about how the Bible itself has mystical powers. If you sleep on it or just hold it up, it has some abilities to ward off evil. Well, I'm not sure exactly what they were facing in Ephesus at the time, and I'm not sure exactly how we could be prone to give ourselves to myths, but we should notice why Paul says this. Why does Paul say that these things are dangerous? He says, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which, verse 4, promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Paul is saying that what's dangerous about these things is their fruit, they, rely, they re, uh, result in speculations. And Paul contrasts here speculations from the stewardship that is from God by faith. In other words, all of us have two options when it comes to our faith. We can either receive something, God's truth that he's given us, and we receive it by faith and we trust it. And we receive it and we care for it and we watch over it. Or... We can give ourselves to simply speculating. This is what's being contrasted here. Speculations are the things that leave you wondering. There's no kind of certainty. But rather, faith, what's given to us to steward, is something rock solid that we can build our lives upon. I know you, as a church, recently rebuilt your building a a number of years ago. And uh, I'm sure when that was taking place, I remember seeing some photographs of it happening at the time. They spent a lot of time putting deep, deep foundations into the building. And in fact, the building didn't start to rise above the ground until they'd spent many months preparing and digging, going down, down deep. You didn't simply just take this building that you wanted to go and stick it in a marsh somewhere uh, in Singapore and just hope that it would last like that. No, there has to be this foundation. And Paul is saying that that there are myths and speculation, things that we aren't sure about, are not able to be a uh, a foundation for our faith. The point here, friends, is that God's word, his truth, is pure doctrine, which is received by faith and is solid compared to something that is unstable and speculative. And Paul is saying to Timothy, don't give yourself to things that result in these speculations. Rather, Timothy, focus on that which is given by God for you to steward. And this 
is none other than the gospel and its implications, everything that flows from it. So he's going to later charge Timothy to preach the word in season and out of season. So let's think about this briefly. We've had a look. We've seen Paul's first pointer that he's charging Timothy. So he's urging him to charge certain men not to teach anything contrary to sound doctrine. How do we apply this to you, Eugene, to the elders, to GBC? Well, Eugene, to yourself, I want to urge you to devote yourself to the word and the gospel that is revealed in it. You are a man who has certainly done so as long as I have known you. And I want to urge you, brother, this morning to continue to do so. You are someone who loves the word. You taught me in your time at RHC how powerful and glorious and beautiful the scriptures are. How indeed they truly are sufficient for all uh, of life and all of ministry. Eugene, you are a sower of the word. You have been sowing the word in your conversations, in your preaching and your teaching throughout all the days that I have known you. And that sowing of the word is slowly, those seeds are growing and bearing amazing fruit. You have seen some of that fruit in your life, but you're going to see much, much more of it. Much of it is still coming. Do not grow weary in doing good in this way, my brother. GBC, I want to urge you and encourage you as a church this morning to be a church that is faithful to the scriptures, that receives the word of God humbly and seriously, that are like the Bereans who, when the word of God is preached, they search the scriptures to see whether these things truly are so. Remember that this letter here that is uh, given to Timothy is public to us. You as a church are to see that this man and the elders are to teach the word faithfully. This is their God-given task. You should be like the Bereans that search the scriptures. You should be a congregation that is drinking in the word eagerly. And not only that, but you should pray for the word to come to life. And as your pastors and elders proclaim the word, as the word is shared in your congregation, that it would come with a sharpness, with a weight from heaven. And then you also are to recognize that as those that God has appointed to lead this flock do faithfully proclaim his word, that there is a biblical responsibility on you to follow, to obey, to come under that authority of God and his word. But GBC, as much as it's your responsibility to make sure and to pray for the word here, uh, that which is proclaimed from the pulpit is also your responsibility to have this, this pure doctrine echo or resound throughout your lives and throughout the congregation, to teach one another and preach the gospel to, to each other. Yes, of course, whilst it's true that the pastors teach from the front, that's only one part of the teaching that we see in the Bible. Yes, that which is taught from the front should set the tone, but you should pray that from there, this word echoes throughout the church. From there, it is to ripple throughout the congregation as you sit down with one another, teach each other, encourage one another, use scripture to build one another up and press it into the hearts of each other. I have no doubt that that is a culture that is growing in this church more and more and more. Something that Eugene and Claire helped us with at RHC when they joined us all those years ago. And that fruit is still evident in our church. But let's think about this for a moment. Is there a reason why Paul is saying what he's saying? Why is Paul beginning this letter urging Timothy to, to stick to sound doctrine? I mean, it's kind of obvious in many ways, right? 
that we should get doctrine right. I don't think many of us uh, here who are Christians anyway would doubt that this is important. We all know that if we preach false doctrine, we would be known to be misrepresenting God. We know that we could shipwreck our lives. Some of us may think for a while we could get away with false doctrine, but the truth is we really can't. When we teach things that are false, we are the ones that ourselves end up getting hurt. We may think for a little while we can get away with it, kind of like a boy who's jumping on a trampoline and he jumps and he springs up with all the energy of the trampoline and it looks like he's defying gravity and he's so excited, but after a short space of time, gravity wins and he comes tumbling down again. There are many reasons why we know sound doctrine is important. But friends, let's think about this. Is Paul here only concerned with Timothy being theologically correct for precision's sake? Is Paul just like very particular? Does he just want to make sure that every I is dotted and every T is crossed because he wants all, every little detail to be right because he just wants it to look beautiful? No, friends. We see here that Paul's instruction for sound doctrine has a very tangible goal something that he wants to see happen in the life of the church. Something that he wants to see experienced and felt in the life of the church. What is that? Well, let's have a look in verse 5. His goal is love. Paul says, the aim of our charge is love. The aim of our charge is love. Paul says explicitly that he wants this love that comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. What, what exactly is Paul wanting? He wants love. Friends, I don't know how many of you are aware that there can be churches that exist that are incredibly orthodox in their teaching, where everything is right, but in reality, the felt experience of the church is anything but gracious. Where everything is right, all the doctrines seem to be okay, but when you walk in, there's something not quite right there. They talk about Jesus, but they don't really love one another. They are sweet to one another and maybe very nice, but they never talk about the deeper realities of sin or how they're really doing in their hearts, how they're really growing. They may look upon others and judge them. Maybe other people who aren't as successful as them in life or maybe not quite as holy or those who are struggling, those who've made bad decisions in their lives. There's not a sense of grace being mediated to them. Maybe looking down upon some of those newer members who don't really understand what it's really like to be a part of this church. Don't know all that we've been through. What Paul wants here in Ephesus is love. He wants real love to be felt and experienced and seen. He wants people to walk into a church and be embraced by the firm, steady, heartfelt love of God. Yes, a love that urges us to turn away from sins and cling to Jesus but a love that receives sinners. This is what Paul wants. And this is what he says is the aim of his charge. So what exactly would this love look like? For as a church, this could look like encouraging people by reminding them of their future, where God is taking them. When you're speaking with a brother or a sister and they're just demonstrating such weariness in their fight against sin, they feel like they are hardly making any gains or grounds at all and they're wondering whether they should just give up and they wonder if there's any hope for them. It's putting your arm around them and reminding them that Jesus has purchased them and is taking them to glory. Reminding them of their future. 
finding a fellow church member who maybe you would not really be particularly drawn towards. Maybe they're in a very different life stage to you. And investing in them, in friendship, to both learn and encourage one another. Maybe the ministry of listening to someone. Finding some dear saint on a Sunday who's been isolated and alone and needs someone to talk to and to share her life. And your experience of simply sitting there, hardly getting a word in edgeways, and listening to him or her for 30 minutes on a Sunday. But genuinely listening, responding, praying for, offering a word of encouragement. Can be love to them. Or serving them, serving others in the church in their needs, financial, companionship, or other ways. Letting other people see your own faith, not just your victories, but your sins and your struggles as well. How you have failed and fallen, but then how you've gone to God for grace and how that grace has met you and fortified you and strength, strengthened you. Or maybe just giving patience to other people when others in the church differ from you. As Paul says in Corinthians, that we don't always have to insist on our own way, particularly on secondary matters. Or maybe finding a younger believer and walking alongside them, inviting them into your home so they can see your life. Maybe love for you at the moment looks like recognizing some of the roles and responsibilities that God has given to others in the body. That is a body where there are many different parts and every part is equally valuable but looks different. So love for you may look like seeing that and recognizing that and then building one another up and encouraging them in their role. Today in particular for Eugene as he becomes uh, the new lead teaching pastor. To recognize this is a role that God has given him. To encourage him in that. To pray for him in his role. To pray for leaders. To pray for our souls, to pray for our kids. Now, if you have find that any of these things that I've mentioned now are somewhat difficult or you've struggled maybe to live out some of these things, there are different ways that we can respond. We may think we need to just try a little bit harder, dig a little bit deeper, but I want us to notice what's said in the texture. Remember what Paul says to Timothy. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so you can charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves. And then the aim of our charge is love. The reason I want you to get doctrine right is because I want there to be a harvest of a love in the church. In other words, how does Paul want us to get to a harvest of love? Remember, he's been clear that Timothy is to stick to, the, to this gospel and the aim of this is love. So some of us may be wondering, how exactly does this doctrine lead to love? Some of us may even have some kind of skepticism about this. Isn't it doctrine that divides? Doesn't doctrine separate people? Isn't doctrine just theory, but that's not really the most important thing about the Christian life? No, friends, that's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying the Christian doctrine, which is the reality of who God is and how we should live in the light of God, is central to how we live and how we're to live is love. What we believe, doctrine is what we believe about God and what we believe about how we should live in the light of who God is. It is like the light that shines from the very person of God himself. And who God is, friends, is not just theory in a textbook. No, this reality of God is a reality that has been seen, that has been made flesh, that has come and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ, coming and taking on flesh, says that if you want to know the Father, look at me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he says. 
In other words, this reality of doctrine, which is God and how we should live in the light of God, is seen for us so clearly in the person of Jesus. Jesus helps to give us clarity as to what the Father is like, his love and his tenderness, his hatred for sin and hypocrisy, and yet his tenderness towards sinners at the same time. In the book of Revelation, we see the glory of Jesus where John falls to his feet as though dead just seeing him. Friends, this is what God is like. And at the heart of Jesus' life, his central act is something that helps us understand the heart of God most dearly. Jesus Christ dying for his enemies. Friends, Jesus Christ going willingly to the cross for his enemies shows us the multifaceted aspects of God's attributes coming together beautifully. God's holiness. God's hatred for sin. That God hates sin so much that he is willing not just to watch someone die for it, but his own son die for it. God's upholding of his own righteousness and justice in the death of his son at the cross. And yet at the same time that we look at Jesus hanging upon a cross for us, friends, we see the mercy of God. We see the love of God on display for us. A love that has not left us alone in our status as sinners away from God, but has pursued us to make us his. Friends, this is the Jesus who gave himself for his enemies. And those enemies were you and I, as Paul will say in Corinthians, and such were some of you. Friends, that the cross is the very heart of what true doctrine is. True, true doctrine, friends, is, is awesome. It is breathtaking. It is beautiful. It leaves you trembling when you stare at it. And this is what Paul is to insist on as he remains at Ephesus, of a holy God who is glorious and yet dies for his enemies. That sin is serious and that this love is wide. Now, some of us this morning may be saying, all right, Pastor Simon, I understand in theory how this works, but what does this look like in reality? How does this work out in real practice? Like, how do I actually apply this to my life with those church members that are really getting on my nerves or where I'm not seeing an overflow of grace and love? I'm struggling to love. And the gospel does maybe seem somewhat cognitive to me. Well, let's have a look back at the text. Paul mentions that doctrine leads to love from something. Let's read verse 5 again. The aim of our charge is love that issues from or flows from or comes from a pure heart, number one, and a good conscience, number two, and a sincere faith. These three things, I think, are how gospel doctrine leads to beautiful love. Let's have a look at each of them briefly. Doctrine results in purity of heart that leads to love. So the flow here is Paul says, this, the, the aim of our charge of keeping pure doctrine is love, but this love comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere uh, faith. So let's have a look at these. Doctrine results in purity of heart and love. Friends, the Bible shows us, and I'm sure you know, the heart, from a biblical point of view, is the center of a person before God. And this heart includes our mind, our will, and our affections. Our heart is who we are before God, naked before Him, without all of our pretenses. What's really going on deep inside us, including how we think, what we desire, our loves and affections. And Paul says here that this love that he wants in the church is going to flow from a pure heart. A pure heart, friends, 
is a heart that loves God above all else. A heart that is fixed upon God. A heart that is devoted to God. That's where love comes from. Love, in a sense, is a derivative of a heart that is pure, that is holy, that is given to God. This is why Martin Luther, uh, during his time, wrote and said that it is impossible for us to break any of God's commandments. It's impossible to break any of God's commandments unless we have first broken the first commandment. We should have no other gods. You cannot break one of the other commandments without having first broken the command to not have any other gods apart from God. If you maybe think about an analogy here, if you were to walk into a mall, I live in Bishan, so if I were to walk into Junction 8, if I were to walk, in, walk into Fair Price, I cannot enter into Fair Price unless I have first entered into Junction 8. I have to first scan my QR code to enter into Junction 8 before I can even scan my QR code to enter into NTUC Fair Price. Luther is saying, you cannot enter into one of the rooms or shops of, of sin without first having entered through into the mall of having turned away from treasuring God above all things. It's not possible to lie about someone unless you first stopped worshiping and loving and trusting God. That would lead you to lie or to be jealous over what someone else has. Or to steal what someone else has. You, you can only steal and lie and do all of those things and dishonor one another and be bitter and have jealousies amongst yourself. If first and foremost, God himself is no longer your first God. You're loving yourself above him. You're prizing your own reputation maybe or your own security or something else above God. And that means, in Luther's way of thinking, that before we can deal with any of our other practical sins, we first and foremost need to have our hearts returned to God. We need purity of heart. We need to love and treasure God above all things. And friends, Paul is saying here that it is right doctrine that leads to purity of heart that will then lead to love. How is it that right doctrine leads to love? How do we get a heart of pure love? Well, friends, it starts with having a look at God himself, the God who is love. The God who is love and yet while he was holy came and gave himself for you and I. Spread his arms upon a cross to die for sinners like you and I. We love, we love God and we love one another, John says, because he first loved us. In other words, a sustained meditation and recognition of who God is and what he's done for us is what turns our hearts back to God to love him first and foremost that becomes the engine or the driver for sincere love. This means, friends, our bitterness amongst one another, our jealousies can be cured by the gospel itself, which reorders our heart rightly so that we can now love one another. Our new hearts are freed to love God. Secondly, Paul says that doctrine results in a good conscience and therefore love. Conscience here is the awareness of our own life before God. Conscience is like, our own recognition of how we should live before him. And this true doctrine shows us what that should look like, that our conscience is now shaped and informed by who God is. This, is, this means that, that who God is, the reality of the gospel, doesn't simply only change our hearts and our affections. It actually informs our minds and our conscience that shows us how we should live. We think very simply of a man like Zacchaeus who comes into contact with Jesus 
And that contact with Jesus and Jesus' grace toward him suddenly leads him to realize how I've been living is entirely wrong. And he begins to repent of it. And not only that, but he begins to give um, assurances of what he's now going to do in the light of God's grace to him. I'm going to give away a, a substantial amount of what I have. His conscience is being shaped by God's grace to him. In other words, if Jesus has loved his enemies and given his life for them, surely we could love those even in church who we disagree with. Surely we can forgive them too if the one that we have eternal uh, 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 sin against, against God, can forgive us. We may think about Jesus. If Jesus, very God, made flesh, submitted himself to earthly authorities and wicked authorities like Pilate, surely when we bristle or chafe against decisions that maybe church leadership or elders or Eugene may make that we don't quite like or may think we would have done things slightly differently. If Jesus, friends, could submit himself under the sovereignty of God to Pilate, surely we can do the same. If Jesus is, if Jesus is presently patient with us right now, not even pointing out all our sins, but walking with us gently and graciously, slowly showing us our sins over many years, not just wiping us off the face of the earth when we commit a sin that we promise not to do again, can we then have our consciences shaped by that love so that we too can be patient with church members who may get on our nerves? But this takes the reality of God and who he is, shaping our conscience. And finally, Paul says that this love in the church is to be the result of a sincere faith. A sincere faith. Friends, a trust in God, a looking to God, a living by faith and not by sight, a trusting that God himself is watching over all of our works, a trusting that God himself is going to reward us for all of our labors, even when we are persevering in love, maybe toward a spouse who's not receiving our love, or is ungrateful for it, or is grumpy and bitter toward us, that as we persist in doing well, that our Lord and Savior watches those things and will reward us on that day, that no act of, of, of faith that expresses itself in love is ever wasted in the kingdom. Is this how we will live? Will we live trusting God, a faith that recognizes that, yes, sometimes our lives will go through suffering and adversity and difficulty, and yet God is working out all things for the good of those who love him so that no matter what we're going through, even if we may be like Peter watching our Lord and Savior be crucified, we can trust God that he is working all things for our good. I think this is why Paul says uh, in his letter to Galatia, uh, his letter to the Galatians in verse 9, let us not grow weary in doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. In the Western Cape of uh, South Africa, South Africa is, is where I was born, you have these massive, massive fields framed by beautiful, beautiful mountains. And once a year, um, all of these, these, uh, these fields burst into color. And it is, it is so stunning that the tourists drive there a couple of hours just so they can be in this vicinity. And it's, it's a massive area. 
uh, and people just drive all over this area and they, they kind of time it for those early spring rains when they will catch what's sometimes called the Namaqualand daisies or these, just these, these flowers of these radiant colors. And what's amazing is that that land looks pretty barren, pretty dry. There's not really too much that seems to be there. But then when those rains come, you start to slowly see some flowers emerge and grow. And there are a few here and there. There are a couple of signs, a couple of clumps of flowers. And you know when that happens, that you don't know exactly when it's going to be, that within a couple of days or weeks, suddenly the entire valley, valleys actually, it's a, it's a massive area, they're going to burst into the most glorious and beautiful colors. The photographs are absolutely stunning. Friends, doctrine, I think Paul wants us to see, is pure doctrine that represents the heart of Christ and who he is and what he's done for us is like a seed. For much time, it may seem to lie dormant. But there is a time coming when God's Spirit comes and blows upon it, makes it alive in our hearts. We may see some fruit of this in our lives, in our churches now. We may look around us and see some clumps here and there. Friends, what the Bible tells us is that there is a day coming where Jesus is going to come back, where every bit of sin is going to be pushed away forever and ever. It's going to be wiped away and dealt with. And we're going to bask in the glory of God forever and ever. And as Jonathan Edwards describes it, heaven is going to be a, a place of love. Heaven, a world of love. That's where we're going to dwell forever and ever. In other words, one day, friends, this world that we live in now is going to burst forth with the flowers of love. As a church, we are called now, and you, GBC, are called to be an outpost. You're called to be like some of those clumps of flowers that begin to burst into color a little bit before the rest does. The rest of this world is one day going to be enveloped in this love. As a church now, as the people of God, we are living by faith now, looking forward to that day where God will make all things right. But because of the death and resurrection of Jesus that we see now, that we believe now, that we treasure now, because His Spirit is at work in us as His people, we get to live in some of the early fruit of this. So, let us treasure this that God has done for us. Let us love one another boldly. May you cherish and care for one another. May you devote yourself to sound doctrine. May the love of God and Jesus be on the forefront of your minds and in all of your conversations. This death of Jesus is a seed that has fallen to the ground, is going to bloom in the most tremendous love in all the, in, in all the world. One day, everything is going to be united in him. We now are sowing those seeds of pure doctrine. We, from now, 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 we now, from time to time, get to see these flowers growing. One day, friends, Jesus will come back and everything will be love built on this foundation of his death and resurrection. Now we sow and we reap that love in our own hearts. So in conclusion, GBC, God has been so kind to you as a church in so many different ways. He's been kind to you over many, many years of faithfulness. Today begins a new season in the life of the church. It's another season where you're going to see God's mercies and his kindness to you in a new way. The season today begins with you being blessed with a wonderful new lead pastor. And you're to receive him as a gift from God to you. I want to urge you to pray for him and encourage him in his task. 
of presenting sound doctrine, but not just for doctrine's sake, so that the aim might be sincere love that grows and blossoms in this church. Can I pray for you all before I step down? Let's bow our heads and pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a sovereign, glorious, majestic God. You have all power and authority, and yet your word reveals that you're a God of love. A God who has turned toward us. A God who cares for us. Even though we ourselves are rebels and sinners that have turned away from you and our sin, you have pursued us and loved us. Father, we thank you that this is who you are. We pray, Father, that you would help us as your people, but today particularly for GBC, that this church would prize and cherish who you are and what you've done for them. Father, I pray and ask that there would be glorious and sincere love that is on display in this church as a result of a deep treasuring and loving of the truth of the gospel. Father, we do pray for Eugene and Claire and his family. We pray for you to bless them abundantly, to watch over them, to sustain them for the years ahead. We pray for a fruitful time here, Lord God. Father, we pray for the elders too, that you would help them to lead this church with wisdom and love, Lord God, and faithfulness. We pray for every member here, this congregation, God, that this congregation would be a church that loves your truth, that abides in Jesus' love, and that that love is a love that is seen to be received from him and then given to one another. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.